Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I am Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Stephen Macedo. His new book is titled, Just Married, Same-Sex Couples, Monogamy, and the Future of Marriage. It has just been published by Princeton University Press. Macedo is the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Professor of Politics at Princeton University. Understandably, there has been a lot of talk in the United States recently about marriage equality for same-sex couples. One obvious question is sociological. What are the implications of marriage equality for the long-standing social institution of marriage? But there are philosophical questions as well. What's the purpose of marriage? What are the goods that marriage helps individuals realize? Once marriage is no longer understood to be restricted to heterosexual couples, must we then question whether it should be restricted to couples? Why not recognize plural marital arrangements? Should there be a civil institution of marriage at all? In Just Married, Stephen Macedo explores a broad range of philosophical, moral, and legal issues pertaining to marriage. He argues that, as a matter of justice, marriage rights must be extended to same-sex couples. But he also argues that marriage as an institution should be restricted to monogamous couples. Along the way, Macedo engages with opponents across the political spectrum, from natural law theorists who contend that marriage is intrinsically a heterosexual relation, two contemporary feminist philosophers who argue that we must expand marriage to encompass plural networks of care. Just Married makes a philosophically substantive contribution to the ethics and politics of marriage. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Stephen Macedo. Hello, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Well, thank you for appearing on New Books in Philosophy. My pleasure. And thank you, listener, uh, for checking out our podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen Macedo. He has a new book out. Its title is Just Married, Same-Sex Couples, Monogamy, and the Future of Marriage. This is a tightly argued work that um, uh, works at the intersection of ethics, political theory, law, uh, sociology, and other disciplines. I highly recommend it. It is a uh, quick and engaging uh, read and uh, uh, confess, uh, totally compelling. Um, and there's been a lot of um, argument uh, about same-sex marriage of late, and uh, a lot of argument about the implications of extending marriage rights to same-sex couples, uh, and a lot of talk about what the implications are for the traditional institution of marriage of doing so. Um, Steve advances a collection of theses about these matters, 
um, some of them surprising, uh, um, maybe many of them surprising. Um, but what's nice and refreshing about the book is that all along the way, at every step, um, Steve takes careful, um, pays careful attention to um, the opposing views on all political sides. Um, so, you know, one of the virtues of the book, I think, I hope Steve won't mind me saying this, is that it's bound to make enemies from all kinds of directions, um, which I think is a good thing for a philosophy book. Um, but we usually begin with the author. Uh, Steve, can you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, thank you, Bob. And thank you for that very nice introduction, which I appreciate. Um, I grew up in New Bedford, Massachusetts, a small fishing community in southeastern Massachusetts, uh, a Catholic uh, family. Uh, I was an altar boy. I went to Catholic schools uh, all the way through high school uh, and, and conservative family. I suppose that's that's important for parts of the argument. Uh, I then went to William and Mary, which was a, a great place uh, for, to be an undergraduate, uh, majored in economics and political science. Uh, I was lucky then to get a, a scholarship to study uh, in the UK for two years. Uh, went to the London School of Economics at first to do uh, economics, but uh, uh, hated the math. Uh, <laughs> so I dropped it after two weeks and switched into Michael Oakeshott's seminar on the history of political thought. He was quite emeritus and, and nearly retired at that point, but but that was my transition. And then uh, and then I went to Oxford for uh, for a year, uh, ran out of funding, uh, studied political theory there with Stephen Lukes uh, and uh, others, um, uh, worked for Ron Paul for one year. I was a conservative back then, uh, kind of a Reaganite, uh, classical liberal, I guess I would say. Uh, uh, went to Princeton, where I uh, got my Ph.D., uh, spent a year back at Oxford starting my dissertation, uh, was lucky enough to work with Ronald Dworkin. Uh, Charles Taylor on um, Hegel and Marx and, uh, and communitarianism, as it were. And I, uh, I kind of stumbled across the communitarian critique of liberalism at that point and wound up writing my dissertation on, on that and also some issues in constitutional theory that were related. Uh, so that, that sort of fed into my first book, which was Liberal, uh, uh, liberal Virtues, uh, which was kind of a liberal response to the communitarians, emphasizing that there are positive conceptions of virtue, community, uh, and citizenship within the liberal tradition, frankly centered on, on reason giving and reason demanding. I was, I was already interested in the kind of public reason that Rawls was starting to develop at that point. It's also there in Dworkin, of course. So uh, uh, I was very lucky, I think, in my graduate uh, career. I had the, the communitarian uh, uh, critique sort of dropped in my lap, uh, almost literally. Uh, I, met Michael, <laughs> I met Michael Standell the day he was defending his his dissertation, uh, his, his field <laughs> dissertation, uh, and Stephen Lukes gave me a copy of it the next day. Uh, it, it was very close to the final version of liberalism, the limits of justice. That, along with sort of McIntyre and Taylor and others, sort of was obvious that that was a good uh, a good topic for for a liberal, still a classical liberal at that point, but one who was already sympathetic to to Dworkin and Rawls to respond to. Uh, and um, and the other thing that was dropped in my lap was, in, in a way, the um, Originalism and constitutional theory. Uh, Randy Barnett, who's a very well-known kind of libertarian, classical liberal uh, uh, legal scholar, uh, uh, passed along to me an invitation to respond to uh, Robert Bork, something that he'd written called Tradition and Morality and Constitutional Law. So I did that when I was in, in grad school for the Cato Institute. Anyway, I was very lucky uh, I, I, in both of those respects. Uh, and um, uh, just to get through this, uh, I taught at Harvard for eight years, which was a fantastic experience. Uh, 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 was a visiting fellow at Princeton for a year where I did my Ph.D. I should say uh, my my advisors were Amy Gutman. I think I was her first 
PhD student. Uh, I always tell people I made a very good choice. <laughs> and uh, Walter Murphy on the constitutional side and, and a bunch of other people who were around were incredibly helpful, including uh, Soterius Barber at Notre Dame and Jeff Toulis and Bernie Yak and many others. Um, uh, taught at Syracuse for uh, sorry, taught at Syracuse after Harvard for for four years, uh, where I taught con law and civil liberties, which was which was terrific. It's a wonderful institution, and I enjoyed that a lot. And then returned to Princeton in '99, uh, and have been here since then, uh, uh, and quite delighted uh, to be here. So um, here, my teaching uh, focuses on ethics and public policy, which is uh, in a way my my core interest. I'd say sort of justice, liberal justice, critics of liberalism. Uh, and the implications uh, of, of liberal justice, uh, liberal democratic justice for various kinds of public policy and institutions uh, is what I'm, I'm sort of centrally interested in. I guess the only other thing I would add to that is I, I, I wrote another book called Diversity and Distrust. And one of the things I've always been interested in is the, the ways in which uh, a liberal democratic regime constrains diversity. We often think of, of respect for diversity, wide range of different points of view, comprehensive views ethical views, uh, uh, diversity as being a core value of, of a liberal democratic regime. And of course, that's true. But it's also uh, interesting, and I, I think extremely interesting to look and see what limits uh, a, a liberal democratic values impose. Uh, and I explored that in diversity and distrust uh, with respect to religion, focusing on the institution of public schooling in particular in America. And in a way, the marriage book uh, sort of grows out of some of those themes, because um, uh, 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 we'll get on to it, but I'll say that the, the marriage book sort of addresses three questions. Uh, one is why same-sex marriage, in a way, that's become the easy question. Uh, and then the second question is why marriage as an institution in civil law, uh, you know, this singular institution taking, you know, sort of status institution. And then finally, why monogamy? And what, what interests me there, obviously, with, with uh, respect to the last two parts in particular, is that it's a very particular institution that imposes a, a kind of common shape on the deepest aspects of people's personal lives. And uh, so I've, I've been intrigued by and wanted to respond to the many critics of marriage who argue in one way or another that this can't possibly be justified to have uh, one institution that imprints a distinctive stamp so deeply on the most personal aspects of our lives. Right. Excellent. If you don't mind me asking, what, what did you do for Ron <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I was uh, I had a year off. I, I ran out of funding, as I mentioned, in grad school. Right. And um, and I had a kind of year off. And I always had in the back of my mind, of course, that, well, you know, this academic thing might not pan out. So <laughs> what else would I do? Well, I, I was very interested in, in public policy uh, and, and national politics. So I thought, well, I work in Washington for a year. I applied to various places, including uh, the White House speechwriting office. Uh, Reagan was president at that point. And I, I didn't get the job, but I, I was applying around to various places. I'd written my senior thesis, I should say, in college on supply side economics. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and that was helpful. Um, uh, and um, uh, so I was a legislative correspondent and then a legislative assistant. Uh, Paul's main issue, Elliot's only issue, was the gold standard. I, I didn't work on that. I sort of worked on, on many other things. I worked on non-interventionism and foreign policy and uh, so, some of his more libertarian uh, uh points of view. He was always opposed to the draft. He was opposed, opposed to foreign intervention. So I found him a very intriguing person to work for, certainly. Uh, we had arguments in the office about, um, you know, the uh, uh, strange points of, of libertarian principles. Suppose someone bought a one-inch strip of land across the whole country. Could they stop people from crossing? Uh, mm -hmm. Things like that were subjects to debate in the office. 
it, it was quite fun. And, and I guess what I would say uh, about him and about working there was uh, he didn't vote on the basis of the interests of his constituents in particular. He voted nearly always on principle. And so that was uh, it was an interesting place to be. Uh, I, I've certainly migrated away from that uh, point of view, and I was never, to be honest, um, altogether sympathetic with him. I was always a classical liberal, uh, never a hardcore libertarian, but um, uh, I, I did find it a, an interesting uh, place to work for a year. It certainly confirmed um, my view that I preferred uh, being an academic, and I feel very lucky that that's worked out, uh, at, least for, at least for the time being. Well, excellent. Why don't we uh, why don't we turn to the? I, I just always find it intriguing when when I, I hear that um, uh, you know very prominent and successful academics have um, sort, some non, sorted, non some non academic thing in the sorted past. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know if I would put it exactly that way, but yes. Um, so why don't we uh, turn to the book? Um, so um, just married begins with an introductory sort of discussion. Uh, it's just called the introduction, um, where you ask uh, why marriage matters. And uh, in in those pages, uh, you sort of lay out a view of uh, in very broad strokes of, you know, where you think the issues are uh, with respect to marriage and same sex marriage uh, and uh, why you think um, uh, this is a discussion worth having and what, what you think is at stake in these discussions. Can you, can you just help frame for us what you think um, the, uh, the issues are? Yeah. I mean, um, uh, obviously in the most straightforward sense, uh, the, uh, the fact that uh, in uh, the early 21st century, uh, the issue of same sex marriage uh, was coming to a head as a matter of constitutional law and as I was writing the book, it became more and more obvious that we were on the verge, uh, it seemed, of the Supreme Court recognizing the constitutional uh, equal right to same-sex marriage for gay and lesbian couples. Obviously, that's hugely historic. I guess the one thing that I didn't add to my biography is that, uh, uh, you know, I'm gay. And I, I realized that, uh, you know, obviously back in New Bedford in my in midst of my conservative uh, sort of community and so on. And I've been writing on uh, issues related to uh, gay rights. Uh, since I was in grad school, uh, really. Um, uh, so, so that's one obvious uh, reason. Uh, this is a historic development for development of civil liberties uh, in America. And, um, you know, after sort of military service and so on, uh, equal marriage rights is just usually historically important. And it, it's something I've been writing on, as I say, off and on. I, I put it aside, but I wrote about it a fair amount in the late 80s and uh, early to mid uh, 90s. Um, so that, that's one obvious hook. But but then, two, I think the debate around same-sex marriage uh, helped to uh, sort of get on the table a whole set of wider debates about, you know, the institution of marriage and what does it mean? What does it matter to people? Why does it matter to people? Uh, uh, and, and then as things developed, too, of course, uh, as I sort of followed the debate, but also as I was teaching the stuff in class, it became increasingly obvious that there were these wider you know, issues having to do with, with plural marriage and polygamy that people were arguing for. But in terms of the introduction, uh, you know, one of the things that I lay out, which I think is very striking, is if we think about the last 10 years or 15 years of, of, of same-sex marriage controversies, one of the things that happened was that places like Vermont and, uh, and other states, uh, California, gave uh, same-sex couples, uh, as a matter of state law, uh, the various privileges and benefits uh, uh, that attached to marriage, but they didn't give the word marriage. 
Uh, they created domestic partnerships or civil unions. Uh, and in the litigation in California and elsewhere, uh, there were striking moments where, you know, a judge would say to the attorney, I think it was the conservative attorney in the California case who then wound up arguing before the court as well, uh, Charles Cooper. You know, are we having this whole debate about a word, marriage? What, 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 di- what difference does that make? And, and Cooper's response was something like, as I recall, well, the word is the institution. So I think one of the things I try to lay out in the introduction there is, is uh, 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 try to flesh out the importance that people attach to this word. Obviously, part of it is that the very fact that it's so contested, that it's been so heatedly and hotly uh, opposed by people on the right, uh, especially the Christian right, uh, same-sex marriage, uh, is obviously going to make it salient for the other side as well. But it's not just that. It's not just that it's a token uh, in political controversy. Uh, I think I quote several people, including uh, Kristen Perry, who was um, one of the lead plaintiffs in the California litigation of Proposition 8. And she said something like uh, when she was uh, uh, testifying, I think, uh, uh, I don't have a word. I didn't have a word to tell others you know, about my relationship with my partner. You know, we're not just partners. We're not friends. We're not just housemates and so on. We want to be married. And so I do think and I think it's important to the institution that the word marriage carries something distinctive. And what I've been very impressed by it, as I I said, I come from a kind of conservative background. and I've always been on the more conservative side of the same sex marriage debate, not 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 opposing same sex marriage, but being in favor of same sex marriage. Uh, Andrew Sullivan was actually one of his dissertation advisors at Harvard when he did his Ph.D. there. And uh, I was always um, on the side of. those advocates for gay and lesbian rights who thought that marriage rights were extremely important. Many uh, 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 the people in, in queer studies and sexuality studies and so on back then were very, very skeptical about marriage. In fact, deeply opposed to it, deeply opposed to the whole institution. So I've never been uh, that way. And um, uh, uh, it seems to me that these quotations that I have in the introduction from Kristen Perry, from others, sort of demonstrate just how significant uh, this institution is to same-sex couples, but also to to other Americans. Uh, 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 that that um, uh, you know, marriage as an institution matters to people very deeply. It's not just a, it's a political institution, but it's also a, a way of signaling private commitment uh, and uh, announcing it to the world. Uh, uh, and I think having that recognized by other people in our community, having this very deep life-shaping. Uh, commitment recognized by people in our community is is part of what's very significant about marriage. Uh, So I try to lay that out in the introduction. And then, of course, also, uh, as you said uh, earlier on, uh, indicate that 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 pushback has come from the right by invoking a kind of slippery slope that if we have same sex marriage, what else will follow? Justice Scalia has repeated this slippery slope argument in every dissent. Uh, in uh, cases leading up to uh, Obergefell, the same-sex marriage decision, he actually doesn't doesn't mention it particularly in the Obergefell uh, dissent, but he mentioned <laughs> which is odd, which is a little odd. But he seems yeah. to, that the tone of his um, dissent in Obergefell was one of resignation, and in right. fact, he even says, you know, quite uh, disingenuously, obviously, well, he doesn't really care about you know the, the result in this case. Uh, uh, he just didn't think the court should be the one uh, uh, deciding the question of same-sex marriage, right? Uh, but but yeah, he kind of says, "Do what you want." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> leave me alone. Uh, but um, uh, so um, uh, so so again, so 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 marriage is important. The slippery slope argument has been articulated by Scalia by many, many, many others, 
and you know what I think is very striking is that while many people I think would be disposed to write off you know the slippery slope argument, incest, bestiality, polygamy, uh, other kinds of things, the fact is that there are many people on the, on the left, not just you know people on the activist left, but academics, ethicists, political theorists, uh, who have embraced uh, many of the items on the slippery slope, including plural marriage. Some, including adult incest, in the case in which uh, there's no possibility of, uh, of procreation, creating children with uh, genetic uh, defects. Uh, some people have argued, well, why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't two consenting adult siblings be able to uh, have a romantic relationship? Uh, and uh, I haven't seen anything on bestiality, but there are other aspects of the slippery slope that obviously uh, many people uh, uh, on the left have um, have embraced. And not only that, but also marriage privatization. Uh, right. Libertarians, be like Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, many people who, who think that in place of a status institution defined by law, we should have uh, the opportunity to personalize the institution, to uh, create our own uh, distinctive uh, marriages that suit our preferences. So there's something uh, surprising about the fact that the law defines marriage in advance for all. Uh, uh, that's also an aspect of the controversy uh, here. Uh, so, um, so anyway, the, the the introduction sets out uh, those various issues, uh, albeit rather briefly, and, and sets up the, what what's to come. Well, great. So, why don't we get into some of the details then? Um, and uh, let me just sort of pick up on um, uh, something I said earlier, and something you just reiterated, which is, you know, you're very careful to uh, position yourself relative to critics on, you know, on different sides of the political spectrum. So um, one of the things I found refreshing about the book um, was the kind of care uh, and attention that you gave to um, what I think is a is a pretty serious philosophical tradition, although I, I don't think that uh, on this issue they're they're at their best. Um, so the sort of new natural law theorists um, have a uh, a, a, a pretty clear line uh, that they take in opposition uh, to same-sex marriage that um, is actually philosophically interesting in that it 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 seems to have the um, be driven by the thought that um, the very term same-sex marriage is a kind of contradiction that it would be impossible for there to be a, a marriage uh, between uh, uh, or among a same-sex couple. Um, can you tell us a little bit about their about the, about that kind of view? Yeah, well, you you stated it uh, exactly right, at least in terms of, of the punchline. I'll, I'll just add one biographical element that, uh, as I said, I did my PhD at Princeton, and when I got to um, uh, the defense of it, uh, the uh, one of the outside readers was a newly uh, arrived uh, assistant professor, uh, Robert George, who has become the leading. Right. So he was the reader of my. Uh, of that that what became liberal virtues and and it, I had a bit in it on uh, same sex rights and and maybe I might even had something in it on marriage I, I I can't recall but I certainly had something in the same sex rights he he urged that I read some John Finnis uh, and I did and when I when I revised for the book I had a, a critique of Finnis saying look um, if there are these basic goods that inform sexuality and marriage you know for heterosexual couples these goods of of married life why why can't they be shared by same-sex couples. And then anyway, that led to a series of debates with Finnis and George. Uh, I've always taken the point of view seriously. As you say, it's a serious tradition and a, and a serious philosophical point of view. I, I agree with you that they're not at their best on, on, on this issue. Um, so indeed, uh, uh, the, the new natural law position 
and and the book that was produced recently by uh, George and uh, two uh, graduate students, uh, Sharif Shurgis and uh, Ryan Anderson, kind of sets out a, a, a lawyer's brief, as it were, for um, something like their position. But the, the position is that um, you can't have marriage is, is necessarily and essentially heterosexual. Uh, uh, I'll state the argument as presented in this recent book, What is Marriage? Um, the claim is that the distinctively marital norms of permanence, exclusivity, and fidelity only make sense if marriage is consummated uh, by intercourse or, or coitus. Uh, it's uh, the, that unitive act, as they see it, uh, of uh, two bodies coming together in an act that's appropriate for procreation, whether or not procreation takes place. That is what seals a marriage, and that is what, as it were, holds together the various norms that constitute marriage, uh, coitus, as they say uh, repeatedly. Um, and it's a very interesting, provocative position, though it's not very persuasive because, you know, for example, one would think that, you know, the tendency of, uh, say, heterosexual acts to produce children uh, might argue for, uh, you know, uh, linking sex to serious relationships and committed relationships and so on for the sake of children. But the argument seems to be because, of course, they want to argue that that um, infertile heterosexual couples uh, uh, can participate in marriage just as well as fertile ones. That it's not the children; it's in a way the sexual act itself. That that which is odd. <laughs> it is odd, and um, yeah. you know, uh, I, as you say, I try to present it as sympathetically as possible. Um, but 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 as you say, it's very odd. Not it's odd is the following reason, and I I think I say this in, in the discussion. Lying behind the version of the argument that I just presented, obviously for, for, for George, and I think for his co-authors, is a much wider sexual ethic, which right. uh, George had defended previously, which Finnis and others have defended previously, which is laid out most uh, substantively and elaborately by Germaine Grise uh, in, in a, a volume entitled The Way of the Lord uh, Jesus. Um, and a, according to that view, it's been endorsed by, by these folks. The only, and this is the natural law of sort of sexual ethic uh, that informs uh, Catholic social teachings and, and that I think lies behind uh, the view uh, um, that's been defended by the natural lawyers of marriage is that I mean, the only good forms of sexual uh, activity, uh, the only sick forms of sexual activity that participate in real human goods are those uncontracepted sexual acts uh, between spouses in marriage. Uh, uh, the, Otherwise, the sexual act is just uh, a matter of using our bodies for pleasure, either your own body or the body of another. Uh, uh, contracepted sex in marriage is the equivalent of masturbation, mutual masturbation, as far as these natural lawyers are concerned. And J Germaine Grise has said that when a married couple uses contraceptives, it's the moral equivalent of, of homosexual sodomy, uh, which, which for him is a, 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 a deeply, deeply immoral act. Uh, it is one striking thing about this natural law position that it takes a very broad view of sexual immorality. Uh, a colleague of mine uh, at, at actually at Notre Dame asked me a few weeks ago, well, how many acts, you know, how many sex acts in the United States uh, in, in a given week do you suppose com com comport with uh, these uh, these natural law prescriptions? That is, the, uh, uh, you know, uncontracepted sex acts uh, in a way aiming at procreation and marriage. Well, undoubtedly a very small percentage. So right. this 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 view is, widely departs from the way that people think about sex in America, the way that Catholics think about sex in America, frankly. 
And I think it's only gotten a hearing insofar as it focuses on on gays. Uh, it, it's been a way of expressing, I think, reservations that people have in an elaborate philosophical form. Uh, but if one were to play it out, one would see that it, it's inconsistent with uh, the sexual lives, the beliefs about sex of the vast majority of Americans, and, and frankly, any, I think, sensible view. Uh, um, so, uh, so I do try to present it sympathetically, and um, but but the fact is, it, it isn't being, you know, it hasn't been presented in in a court or a legislature in its its rounded form, uh, you know, f- for quite a long time in a way. Rick Santorum said some things that sort of resonated, you know, with it. But um, but basically, I think uh, it, and I think a problem for the conservatives has been that their arguments, in a way, have stopped passing the laugh test uh, uh, right. in court and elsewhere. Um, uh, uh, the, 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 the argument that marriage is necessarily about procreation in, in a rather simplistic form was presented by Charles Cooper in the Proposition 8 litigation in California, and it led to sort of jokes being made. Uh, in court, uh, it was presented again. He presented it again in the Supreme Court, and uh, various justices joined in, sort of laughing uh, about it, including Justice Scalia, who has mm-hmm. actually dismissed the argument himself in um, in uh, his dissent. I think it's in uh, the Lawrence case. Uh, uh, he has said that that well, you know, uh, that that argument can't work because uh, infertile heterosexual couples are included. That's um, a little surprising, but he, he he does say something like that. So um, so as you say, I do take it seriously. I think it is a serious philosophical point of view, but I, I think the casuistry as it's worked out, as the, the basic goods are applied on this particular uh, subject, um, uh, are just deeply implausible. Um, now, you, you mentioned uh, something in your introduction uh, uh, that um, I do, one thing is I do have running through this discussion of the of the conservative arguments and the natural law arguments is the observation uh, that, you know, in a way, a kind of norm of public reason has shaped uh, the debate over same-sex marriage. Uh, If you look back to conservative arguments from the 1970s and 80s, uh, there's a kind of straightforward invocation of the Bible, of God's plan for marriage, uh, of of gay sex being sinful, and so on. and, you know, as the issues were debated in Congress and legislatures and courts, uh, you know, thoughtful conservatives, frankly, including the natural lawyers, said, look, we have to do better than that. We can't you know, pass laws on this basis. There have to be public reasons and evidence. I think I quote John Finnis to that effect uh, uh, in the in the chapter. Uh, and and to their credit, I think the the new natural lawyers have have been insistent that uh, laws must be based on you know, public reason, evidence that can be presented in public. Uh, they shouldn't be based in you know faith-based convictions. So, so I, I will give the natural lawyers a, a lot of credit for that. They've 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 they've, la- they've laid out their their premises and and their arguments, and um, and I think that's been good for the debate. Um, uh, I have a quotation from a, a Catholic scholar at Duke, by the name of Paul Griffiths, uh, who says at a certain point about the natural law argument. Uh, look, I, I believe you know that this these Catholic doctrines are true that that the world would be a better place if people believed uh, in uh, the natural law teachings on sex. But uh, as an American, I can see easily how people, you know, doubt these arguments. Uh, You know, the premises are subject to reasonable disagreement. Uh, uh, I can see how reasonable people would reject them. You know, and therefore, as a Catholic, I don't think we should be seeking to impose these views uh, on the entire polity through law. 
so I, I and I thought that was a, it's, it's a, 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 a wonderful set of remarks there. And I think many religious citizens themselves have had the view that, you know, while they may think and you'll, you'll find legislatures that say this, that that, you know, as a matter of personal religious conviction, you know, they think, you know, for example, perhaps that sexual that gay sex is immoral or that, you know, uh, uh uh, same-sex marriage, you know, is, is, is not uh, uh, properly recognized within the church. But as citizens, they have to recognize that gay and lesbian couples are taxpayers, they're equal citizens, they fight in the military and so on and so forth, and they deserve to be treated as equals as a matter of law. So I do think something like the kinds of uh, convictions that underlie uh, public reason, uh, the idea that we have to come up with arguments, present them in public, has shaped the debate about same-sex marriage uh, in, in a very important way. And has elevated uh, the debate in a very important way. I mean, over and over, people have come back to the, the question, well, what harm is there in same-sex marriage? Uh, uh, and, um, and indeed, the most powerful conservative argument has been that same-sex marriage would somehow harm children, uh, which is uh, something that everyone would recognize as an important consideration if there were evidence for it. So, um, so I do think the, the argument has been shaped by public reason, uh, and, um, and it is striking how you know, over the course of the last two decades uh, and, and more, you know, a whole series of arguments have been aired, have been tested, have been criticized in public. And uh, and I try to trace out the trajectory of that debate, uh, you know, in this discussion uh, and, um, you know, argue that, uh, I, I know, it's been in, it's been in some ways an impressive uh, uh, set of discussions and, and uh, uh, I think a reason, uh, you know, for applauding at least sometimes uh, the, the, the quality of the debate. But but um, uh, yes, yeah, so I do uh, uh, in the first part focus on um, on uh, these conservative arguments. I should add one other thing, which is that um, I, I pay careful attention to this in part because, as I say, I, I, well, as I might say, I'm, I'm not completely uh, I, I don't dismiss all conservative concerns. I, I think conservatives are right to be concerned about uh, the state of the family, as it were. Uh, I, I think conservatives have been right to emphasize that marriage is, uh, you know, frankly, the best setting in which to raise a child. Uh, it doesn't mean that children can't be raised extremely well by single mothers. Of course they can. Uh, but, uh, but children being raised in single parent homes are, are, have, are, tend to have some special vulnerabilities, you know, uh, not, notwithstanding the fact that, that uh, uh, someone like Barack Obama could be raised by a single mother and 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 uh, rise to the highest office in the land. That 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 happens very frequently. It's just a matter of tendencies. But um, but you know, but conservatives are right, I think, to be concerned about uh, uh, the number of uh, uh, of children, um, you know, being born to uh, very young mothers who who are you know themselves not ready and often would prefer to wait. So so I think there are some concerns that uh, conservatives have that are that are perfectly valid, you know, concerning uh, uh, family and parenting. I wouldn't respond to those concerns in the way that. They're disposed to do, uh, but um, but I do think that marriage is an important uh, and legitimate institution in our society. Well, let me great. Let me pick up on sort of the the um, what you were just a moment ago talking about about the public reason concern, um, because it seems to me that um, if we could imagine that um, some uh, natural some new natural law theorist were to come along and give philosophically um, more compelling sort of responses to what look like kind of counterexamples. Well, if 
you know, marriage is essentially intrinsically by definition, you know, uh, this uh, heterosexual coupling for the purpose or for you know, having the aim or having the good in mind of procreation. Why are, um, you know, uh, people in their 60s allowed to get married? Why are infertile couples for other reasons uh, allowed to get married? Maybe there's some philosophical response forthcoming from the new natural law view that could allay some of these sort of counterexample uh, uh, thoughts. Um, but that would invoke, as you said earlier, sort of more of the sort of broader sexual ethic that seems to be um, at the core of the natural law theorists' view of same-sex marriage. Let's say, though, that that sexual ethic looks philosophically less flimsy than, than it might otherwise look. Um, is it still sufficient uh, uh, that, uh, you know, for um, not basing um, public policy on that sexual ethic is the fact that it's, you know, something that's controversial in public? Uh, is that is that itself sufficient for not basing the, the public policy on natural law? Yeah, I, I, it, it's a good question, uh, Bob. Uh, so, so you're saying suppose the natural arguments were good arguments. But they were, yeah. they were arguments whose premises depended upon a, a, a you know a comprehensive view, or they were complicated arguments, or they were a bit hard to follow. Somehow, they seemed somewhat dubious from the standpoint of public reason, but considered reflectively, you know, in fact, they were they were quite good arguments. Um, and then what would we do? Well, look, I, I think that um, the arguments for uh, the authority of public reason, as it were, the arguments for relying on reasons and evidence that are widely accessible are substantive reasons. Uh, they're reasons having to do with respect for our fellow citizens as e our equals uh, in a democracy. Um, uh, and I think they're very weighty reasons, um, uh, you know, in, in the courtroom and in the public forum, uh, we make we make decisions in, in, in the legislature. We make laws that apply uh, to everyone that will be enforced upon everyone. And we want to be able to provide everyone with a justification those laws that is accessible to them because we respect them as equals. So I think the reasons are very weighty reasons. On the other hand, I suppose they could be overridden in a particular case if what was at stake uh, seemed especially weighty. Uh, that is, if there was some imperative coming from, you know, as, as you're supposing, you know, a, a very a very powerful argument, which nevertheless um, uh, was not fully accessible somehow to the ordinary person. I think one would just have to think about what's at stake on both sides there. But I, I think there has to be a, a strong presumption that the uh, that arguments and evidence can be presented in a way that's accessible. You know, it, it's, a, it's a tricky business. It's, it's hard to know. I've, I've had this discussion with some people about climate change issues, you know, and so on. Suppose suppose the, you know, the best arguments about climate change, you know, and the, and the, the um, uh, uh, immediate threat of some sort of great climate disaster are just ones that couldn't be presented convincingly in public. Well, that's not too hard to believe in some ways, you know, might you override democratic, uh, you know, institutions for the sake of averting a climate disaster? Well, I suppose you might, you know, <laughs> if you were really sure about it. So, uh, you know, I think there are substantive reasons, substantive arguments, moral reasons, moral arguments having to do with democratic respect that uh, undergird our commitment to public reason. Uh, they're very powerful arguments of democratic respect. Uh, uh, and I'm generally very, uh, uh, confident that good arguments and good reasons can be presented in a way that's accessible. 
Uh, however, it's it's always possible that there would be the kind of conflict you're you're mentioning, and then we I think we just have to think about what's at, what's at stake on both sides. Right. All right. Good. Um, so let's move to some of the um, concerns that you uh, some of the critical concerns that you 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 take up. Um, uh, considering critics that, that might be coming from the other yep. political poll. Um, so um, uh, there are, um, and there's been a lot of work and, and you, you survey a lot of it in the book uh, coming from uh, feminist philosophers and legal theorists uh, and other um, progressive, uh, some activist literature that uh, is coming from the left that calls either for the sort of disillusion of, of marriage as a civil institution or as a civil status or something that the state is involved in in any way at all. There's people who say, you know, let marriage be something that churches do uh, only. Um, and that's one kind of a sort of a progressive uh, a critic. Um, they don't see the point of marriage uh, as such in the first place. And so they, they don't see the point of, uh, uh, of extending marriage uh, rights to same sex couples. Um, and then there are this sort of the uh, the left uh, version, as you were saying earlier, of a kind of slippery slope argument that says, yes, um, marriage equality for for same sex couples. And while we're at it, um, uh, marriage equality for um, uh, collections of individuals who want to have relations that are not limited to monogamous dyads, uh, as Elizabeth Brake puts it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about these views and, and where you stand with respect to them? Yeah, um, uh, so, so that's, that's, that's a good summary. So, I mean, there, there are many uh, ethicists and political theorists out there who are um, opposing marriage and arguing and opposing monogamy, arguing that, that um, we should have much more flexible marital arrangements or that marriage should be disestablished, you know, or that we should open it widely. Um, and I think there are, there are several different things that are going on there. Um, I mean, w one set of claims has to do with neutrality and political liberalism, that, that, that somehow having this kind of singular form uh, is inevitably biased against some conceptions of the good life. Uh, and, and people proceed very quickly, uh, you know, along those lines. Um, uh, another one is that the, uh, it's related that the the good, the public good, uh, with respect to marriage, is misidentified. That the good really should be uh, care in its many forms. This is a, a line that's been prominent within, as you say, parts of feminism for for quite a long time. We should we should recognize and support all caring and caregiving relationships, not not single out those that are that are based uh, that have a romantic core and that involve two people. Um, uh, and, and then as well, there are these arguments about much greater flexibility, privatization, personalizing your marriage and so on. Now, I, I think I respond to all of these in, 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 together as it were, in, a, in a couple of different ways. One thing I try to do is to argue that, look, I mean, there are all these criticisms of the, that, that marriage is too problematically special, that it's a special status and so on, you know, can be diffused in the following way. Marriage is a status relation in that it's, it's a relationship who has, but has a common public meaning. Uh, and that common public meaning is is supported by an institution that's recognized in law and that has a whole bunch of legal incidents bound up together in a set of default rules that people can also enter into and take advantage uh, by becoming married. But that those uh, both parts of marriage as a status institution and as having a set of default legal incidents uh, that are involved with it as defined by law, 
serve very practical, straightforward purposes uh, that are uh, widely valued purposes that allow couples to do things that very, very many people want to do. We don't need to invoke any particular comprehensive doctrine to make sense of marriage as a status institution and all of these these default uh, legal uh, uh, incidents of marriage, aspects of marriage. Uh, and the fact is that people very value marriage coming from a very wide variety of different points of view. Marriage is also an incredibly flexible institution. And the only thing I would add before getting into some more details is that it seems to me that when people talk about neutrality as a concern about some particular public institution, there are different ways of responding. One way is a kind of disestablishment way. We get government out of the business of doing X, which would be very appropriate if, if there were a government-sponsored church, say. We just want right. the government to stop doing that, to not sponsor a church. Many people have taken that approach to marriage, that they see marriage as a kind of established orthodoxy when it comes to private life. But that seems to me way too hasty uh, 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 because marriage serves public purposes, a variety of purposes, and it's not, not sectarian in the way that religion is. Another way of pursuing the value of fairness that underlies neutrality is by supporting a variety of different uh, uh, things that are you know, related. So it seems to me that one thing that's very important to recognize is that marriage is distinctive. It's a distinctive form of two-person commitment, but sh surely the law can also recognize and support other forms of caring and caregiving relations that are also valuable to people that are not marital, but with, you know, without calling the marriage or without getting rid of marriage. So I think, the, I think one important uh, uh, sort of truth, I think, in Elizabeth Brake's argument and Tamara Metz and a number of others, I think we could put this, the, sort of, this is the aspect of care, the feminism of care, say, is that marriage is distinctive and many people uh, address some of their fundamental needs for companionship and building a life jointly together through marriage. But it's not the only uh, thing that we should value and support. So we could do marriage plus, as it were. Um, now, let me just back up for a second and talk about sort of marriage as status and then these legal incidents. I build uh, on, I think, what a very good article by Rafe Wedgwood uh, called The Core of the Case for Marriage. Uh, and, and it goes back to this issue that we talked about earlier on about the word marriage and what it matters in our culture and how it matters to people. Uh, so, so I think what we can start with is by saying that the uh, that marriage has a distinctive meaning in our society. It's a distinctive form of interpersonal commitment to share a life with another person, to commit to building a life jointly, uh, to loving and caring for another person uh, uh, in an open-ended way, unconditionally. Uh, the aspiration is to permanence, uh, though divorce is always a possibility, uh, but to build a life together. Uh, without without conditions to have and hold for better for worse, sickness and health till death do we part. That's the aspiration. It's a distinctive form of commitment. What does the law of marriage add to that? It allows people to enter into a publicly well understood commitment and to make it known to everyone in their society as a matter of common knowledge. Because people want to be married, not just you know as a, as a private understanding between themselves. They want it to be known in their whole society that they've entered into this kind of commitment in part because a whole series of presumptions and, and tacit understandings goes along with that. We invite people to parties jointly. There's default decision-making power in the case of incapacitation. A whole series of, of expectations follow. There are also a set of social norms that go along with being married, norms of fidelity, norms of being true to your partner, and so on. Uh, and the fact is that as long as it's the case that people want to enter into those commitments, and find that the relationship is one that, they, that benefits them, then those kinds of constraints 
which is how we might look at the social norms, are enabling. They enable us to enter into an assured commitment to another person because there are those social understandings and those social norms that support it. So the fact is that if you look at public opinion polls and so on, the vast majority of Americans want to be married. Uh, the vast majority of Americans do marry at some point in their lives. Uh, the percentage of Americans who are currently married, adults, has declined. But that's partly because people are waiting longer to get married. The median age of marriage, marriage has risen by seven years since 1960s. So there are a lot of younger people who are kind of biding their time before they get married. Is that? Do you think that's for economic reasons, or just people are spending longer in school, yeah. or what do you think? I think I think I think both of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's no question. Uh, this is one of the things I talk about uh, in the book, and this is very important. Uh, a huge class divide is open with respect to marriage, uh, so right. that uh, people are postponing marriage, uh, men and women, uh, for the sake of uh, their education. Uh, they're not postponing sex, but they're postponing having children and getting married. And the most successful marriages now are by couples, both of whom have college degrees. They're well situated to do well in the economy. But as I say, they, they postpone uh, getting married and then having children until after they've uh, settled down, gotten their degrees and started to work. Those marriages are very stable and, and very successful. They're also far more equal than marriages in the past. Unfortunately, uh, uh, the economy has undermined the economic basis for marriage among less well-educated people. And those people also have, to have tend to have more traditional views about the husband as breadwinner. And it's been uh, uh, the kind of decline of uh, blue collar jobs that's been especially striking. And so uh, uh, among sort of high school graduates, high school dropouts, the, the strong, much stronger tendency to cohabit and to have children in cohabiting relationships, which proved to be much less uh, stable uh, than people hope. Uh, so there's been a huge class divide that's opened. And um, what I wind up arguing in the book is that that's much more important than this concern with polygamy and uh, polyamory and so on. Uh, but uh, so there is there is that class divide. Um, uh, but, but to get back to marriage as status, again, it serves a very important function that there is this template that's available to us. The legal incidents, those whole complicated series of things that are available to us. Uh, uh, but it's very useful to have those things available to us because they're very hard to think through. The legal terms of marriage you know, allow us to take advantage of uh, uh, rules that have been found useful in the past, frankly, often for, for protecting the more vulnerable partner. If marriage were a matter of contract, it would work like other contractual relations, which tend to advantage the stronger and more calculating party. Uh, right. Let me just add one other thing about the uh, libertarian proposal for marriage as contract. It's very easy to uh, enact prenuptial agreements now. It used to be the, the, the case that in law they were not recognized, but now they're recognized pretty much anywhere. So people can enact prenuptial agreements that personalize their marriage if they wish, but very few do so. Right. Only about three, three to five percent, actually there are no good statistics on it, and typically, they're executed uh, only in a second marriage, uh, where there's uh, where one spouse wants to protect money from 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 or, or to protect a, a previous spouse and and children from an earlier marriage. Uh, so the fact is that people could personalize their marriages now, but choose not to. Uh, some ways in which people might personalize limit the obligations of marriage would be at odds with the marital commitment itself. Elizabeth Anderson has pointed this out uh, and others. Uh, I quote some very nice remarks by Eric Schwetzgebel, who's a, a philosopher out in California, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, 
the, the marriage commitment is itself meant to be open-ended, unconditional. Uh, that, that's inherent to it. People are supposed to shift their attention to one another uh, uh, through good times and bad. So in a way, limiting you know, what we're being willing to do in marriage could be at odds with the whole notion of marital commitment. In any case, uh, it seems to me that the virtues of personalization are more apparent than real, though I allow that there are some ways in which it can be very helpful to set out your expectations for, uh, for your marriage. Uh, but, it, but it turns out uh, that, that the public status of marriage, the public understanding of what it means to be in a marital commitment, and all these various legal incidents that are set out in law in advance of our getting married serve very kind of, in a way, I'd say mundane, straightforward, public purposes uh, for couples of a wide variety of sorts. And, and the other thing about marriage, and this is the last thing I'll say about it, is that people can conduct their marriage in all kinds of different ways. They don't have to live together. They don't, they don't have to do anything, really. It's a very right. flexible arrangement. So uh, it seems to me it's consistent. It's already consistent with a great deal of personalization uh, in terms of how we conduct our marriages. One big limitation, of course, is that you can only marry one other person. Uh, and and that, that is, uh, well, at least in theory, it's a big limitation. <laughs> Um, so why don't we pick up with that um, and let's talk uh, a little bit about the monogamy uh, defense uh, or your defense of monogamy and particularly about what um, what we might call sort of a nuanced opposition to um, uh, polygamy, polyamory uh, kinds of arrangements, plural arrangements. Um, you take this sort of stuff very seriously as well, especially the, uh, the Latter-day Saints stuff. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about some of those issues? Yeah, so I mean, uh, is, you know, there are a number of philosophers and political theorists that have questioned monogamy. Uh, Cheshire Calhoun has a well-known uh, article, uh, and, and there are a number of others, as you said, Elizabeth Brake more recently, uh, Tamara Metz, uh, Claire Chambers. I mean, there are, there are a wide variety of people that are that are questioning this. And it's a, it, to me, this was the most interesting part of working on the book because it's something I'd never really thought about before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of us have never really thought about it before. Um, and um, what's very striking is that um, plural marriage uh, has been very common across human history. Eighty-five uh, percent of societies in the world have had uh, polygamy as the preferred form of marriage. It's something that only the wealthier can take advantage of um, uh, because it, it requires extra resources. But it's in a way it's what people aspire to in 85 percent of human societies. It almost always takes the form of polygamy. And I should say that my case against uh, uh, polygamy is based on human experience. It's what it amounts to in practice uh, 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 as a social form. My argument is not that, 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 that plural or marital arrangements or romantic arrangements are necessarily inherently immoral. It's not a natural argument, anything like that. It's what it amounts to as a social form, its consequences for individuals and for society. And children. So, so overwhelmingly, it takes the form of polygyny, which is one husband with multiple wives. Polyandry, one wife with multiple husbands, is extremely rare and seems to only exist in conditions of kind of desperate poverty, where uh, breaking up a family farm, say, would, would not support two families. So two brothers will marry the same, the same uh, women, woman or women, uh, as happens in parts of Tibet and, 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 and so on. So Overwhelmingly, polygamous marriage takes the form of of polygyny, one husband with multiple wives. That's true of the past. It's true of the present. 
And frankly, if you look at psychological evidence, uh, men have a much stronger preference for multiple partners uh, all at the same time or any given time than women do. So uh, this uh, sort of sociobiological or psychological evidence suggests that there are, are, are natural differences or innate differences or evolved differences between men and women. is always a bit dicey. I, I admit that. But there's multiple forms of evidence that suggest that uh, it's not an accident that polygamy uh, has tended to take the form of one husband with multiple wives. And it's not just a matter of culture. Uh, um, however, obviously, that's somewhat controversial. But if we look at human experience with polygamy, it involves uh, one husband with multiple wives. And that's associated with a whole set of social, social pathologies, uh, complex families in which multiple uh, uh, spouses and half related children, stepbrothers and stepsisters cohabit are far more prone to jealousy and conflict uh, than are monogamous families uh, with one husband and one wife. So there are much higher, greater rates of violence in the home. Uh, children uh, tend to suffer uh, in such families because of rivalry, jealousy, favoritism, uh, conflict, uh, and so on. Uh, it's also the case that uh, the incentives of, of better-off men are malign in a polygamous society. They have an incentive to invest their extra resources in acquiring additional wives, whereas in a monogamous society, they have that incentive to invest those resources in their children. Uh, and so uh, well, monogamous societies tend to be much more socially progressive. And finally, uh, uh, polygamous uh, arrangements discriminate against low-status males. Uh, it's the case that only uh, uh, high-status males can uh, can afford to have these additional wives. And if you have only 10 or 20 percent of the men in the society having two or three wives, they're going to be a very substantial portion of, of the rest of the men, the lower-status males, who are going to be unable to uh, have a wife and a family at all. And unmarried males do what unmarried males tend to do. They, 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 they drink a lot more, they fight, uh, and, and they <laughs> contribute to much higher rates of violence in society. Uh, there's, there's considerable evidence for this cross-nationally and, and historically. Uh, uh, the one-child policy in China has contributed to this, the sexual imbalance and a large number of unmarried males, evidence from India, and so on and so forth. So I draw the evidence uh, significantly not only from litigation in British Columbia in which the Supreme Court of British Columbia upheld their criminal prohibition after taking expert witness testimony from a wide range of leading experts uh, in evolutionary psychology, chairman of the classics department at Stanford, uh, uh, eminent political scientist at Brown, uh, a very significant evidentiary basis for concluding that uh, polygamous societies have much worse outcomes in terms of health, well-being uh, for women and children in particular, but also for lower status males as compared with monogamous societies. Let me just mention one other thing about this historically. It appears that monogamy emerged in ancient Greece after the Homeric epics, but before the historical period. And the thought is that monogamy contributed greatly to the relative success of the Greek city-states made for much more cooperative, progressive social relations. It was picked up by Rome, which likewise, the thinking is, prospered in part because of the more cooperative, less hierarchical, less conflictual social relations associated with monogamy. And, and th then Christianity. So it's Western, but not Christian. Uh, and, uh, and it spread uh, unevenly across the world. Uh, there's another piece of litigation in Utah involving Cody Brown, the star of TV's Sister Wives. He got a federal court to strike down their criminal 
prohibition, uh, part of the criminal prohibition just recently. But in that case, there was no empirical evidence brought to bear at all. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that we've got to be aware of of the reasons why, from a social point of view, but also from an individual point of view, it makes sense uh, to favor monogamy. And I put it not just in terms of public goods, but in terms of justice. Uh, polygamous marriages, polygamous social arrangements deny people the fair opportunity to pursue the great good of family life. Also deserves women and children the uh, social bases of equality of status and opportunity in society. So there's every reason to think, somewhat counterintuitively perhaps, that monogamous marital arrangements are uh, a way of securing the preconditions of liberal democratic justice. Uh, that's the argument of those chapters. Yeah, and that was, uh, I should say, that the, the what you've just outlined as the argument from justice was um, uh, one I hadn't heard before, which uh, I thought was uh, really compelling, um, especially um, because it seems to incorporate a premise that drives some of uh, the um, advocacy for plural arrangements, which is um, these marital arrangements have, you know, bring with them all of these great goods. <laughs> you say, well, right. But if we have plural arrangements, that means that some people are going to be able to hoard those resources. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> Excellent. Right. Hoard the resources and also not produce the goods, uh, as it were. That's right. Uh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, so let me let me ask what, one last question because you've, you've been very generous with with your time and we really appreciate it. Um, so uh, does um, the book uh, w was completed and uh, I believe actually was published before the Supreme Court decision? Does that decision affect anything in the book in any particular way or not? No, not really. <laughs> there's nothing <laughs> surprising in the Supreme Court decision. I mean, nothing surprising. There's some surprising remarks in the dissents. It's odd, uh, right? You know, Justice the Chief Justice Roberts. Um, has these bizarre remarks about the marriage tradition that's been overturned, and he includes the Kalahari Bushmen, the Han Chinese, and so on and so forth. These are all polygamous societies, so he's somehow criticizing the, the court for overturning the, the our, our marriage tradition, which includes uh, uh, polygamy. Uh, I have no idea what's going on in his mind with that. But no, the um, and also isn't didn't he also sort of raise this point about how um, you know. The social change is, has come about by, you know, the power of the court rather than by persuasion and civil society. And there was a, a weird moment of, you know, you lost the opportunity to persuade your fellow citizens of the, the justice of your view and just relied on the power of the court. Yes, that, that's in all of the dissents. Uh, again, that's not surprising, but 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 there it is. Uh, that's fair enough. And uh, the fact is, we have had a, a two decade and more discussion about this. The arguments have been aired uh, thoroughly, and public opinion has shifted uh, quite decisively, frankly. It's, it's only moved in one direction for the last 10 years. Right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's conceivable. It's not crazy to think the court should have waited a bit longer, but, but people are being denied their fundamental rights in the meantime. Uh, exactly. And, <laughs> yeah, and um, clearly uh, it's, it's uh, one of the roles that the Supreme Court should play uh, to, to vindicate the rights of uh, long discriminated against minorities. Uh, and, and also to clear, uh, you know, the, the channels of change uh, when it's clear uh, that, that they're taking place. So this is this was going to happen at some point. Uh, 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 and, um, you know, um, uh, none of the justices say anything really about the merits 
right. of, of, of the dissenting side. Uh, uh, all Roberts can say is, well, we've had this marriage tradition for a long time. He, again, he includes polygamous societies uh, and, and, and so on. So, so I don't think any of it's really surprising. Uh, uh, and nothing. I will say that in the blogosphere and elsewhere, uh, people have continued to press the arguments from the left about polygamy and polyamory. Polyamory is one thing we haven't talked about, which is the, the hope the hope that there can be an egalitarian form of polygamy. Uh, and I just want to say just one word about that, which is that sure. it's never existed as a social form anywhere in human history and doesn't exist anywhere now. That is, there are scattering examples of living in you know, uh, polyamorous arrangements, um, open marriages, you know, marriages, group marriages, and so on. But it's a scattering of fringe examples. There's not a single systematic study of this as a social form. There's no social movement in favor of it. And as I say, no society in human history has ever had egalitarian plural marriage as a stable social form. So it seems to me ridiculous to say that we should we should do more than tolerate it, which is what I'm, I'm in favor of that. Uh, and I'm also in favor of providing some recognition for those made vulnerable by plural uh, marriages, uh, you know, to protect uh, uh, women to give them some claims on the resources of a, of a husband uh, if they're in a, a polygamous marriage arrangement and, and, it, and, and it should break up. Uh, I think we should give protective recognition to women and children uh, who have, have been in, in a polygamous arrangement, but not full recognition, not equal recognition, because I think we want to protect the vulnerable, but also discourage what is uh, a, a highly, I think, uh, unfavorable uh, social form. Uh, in a liberal democracy. Well, Steve, you've, you've been again very generous with your time, and um, and uh, we've, I think we've covered a lot of the bases of of, of your your book, which is uh, which was a really uh, a, a great read. Just married. I want to thank you for appearing on New Books in Philosophy. Rob, thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. Take care now. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Stephen Macedo of Princeton University. We were talking about his new book, Just Marry, Same-Sex Couples, Monogamy, and the Future of Marriage, which is newly published by Princeton University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.